welcome everybody and thank you for joining us tonight. We're excited to present the first installment of the AO Trauma North America Journal Club focusing on pelvic ring injuries. My name is Andrew Chen and I'll be one of the moderators tonight along with Dr. Arun Anasia and Dr. Adam Lee. This was an idea that was first thought of by Dr. Rahul Vedia. Now the previous AO Davos fellows have helped get the series started. The goal is to present landmark orthopedic trauma uh, articles through interviews with the authors and provide an opportunity to ask questions. We'll, we'll plan on focusing on different topics each month and today we'll start with pelvic ring injuries. Tonight we're excited to be presenting three landmark articles with Dr. Andrew Burgess and Dr. Chip Rout from the University of Texas Medical Center at Houston and Dr. Claude Stodgy from the University of Cincinnati who are all here with us to answer any questions tonight. These are our disclosures. So tonight we will be going uh, through three journal articles on pelvic ring injuries. We'll start by going through each interview and then allow for a short Q&A session before proceeding forward. As the interview is being presented, please feel free to ask any questions you have through the Q&A box and we'll moderate these and try to get your questions answered by the lead authors. We'll be starting with Dr. Burgess and then proceeding forward. Learning objectives for tonight. Uh, the first one is to describe the classification of pelvic ring injuries. Number two is to comprehend the rationale for percutaneous fixation of U-shaped sacral fractures. And the third is to identify the indications for an exam under anesthesia for a pelvic ring injury. All your microphones have been muted and video videos have been turned off to help with bandwidth. Once again, please use the Q&A box for questions related to the discussion topic. We'll moderate and review the questions and present them to the faculty after each interview. Our first article is gonna be presented and moderated by Dr. Adam Lee. All right, thank you, Andrew. We'll go right to the videos and share my screen here and get straight to it. Any questions you have, type in the box and I'll try to consolidate them and direct them towards Dr. Burgess, once we finish the recorded video. We want to thank you, Dr. Burgess, for taking time to join us. Uh, the paper that was uh, selected is going to be looking at your paper from the Journal of Trauma uh, in 1990, looking at public ring disruptions, effective classification system, and uh, treatment protocols. And so, Dr. Burgess, if you could just start uh, discussing um, what was the basis uh, for this uh, study. Well, we were blessed by the um, early 80s and late 70s, but starting in around 1980, 81 and 82 to uh, be in the sort of the early version of a totally dedicated trauma center, what became a level one trauma center. It was an abandoned hospital in Baltimore. And, and what came uh, to our benefit was the physical location of the plant put our trauma operating rooms literally across the hall from the resuscitation area. The second thing that happened is uh, we got most of the major pelvic ring disruptions in, in a two or three state area with the center being in Baltimore. Uh, helicopter retrieval, uh, about 50% of our patients was uh, a large amount. 70% of our patients came directly from the scene. And I think as important as anything, we would get called early out of the operating room for our feelings and physical um, uh, assessment of a pelvic fracture fairly early in the resuscitation stages of somebody that was uh, uh, that level of instability. 
and the second thing, which I now consider a blessing, is you only had a few tools. Um, CAT scan of pelvic fractures didn't exist. Interventional angio didn't exist. Um, and uh, you were left with, or blessed with, a physical exam, a set of vital signs, a radiograph, usually an AP pelvis. And if it was minutes or a half hour segments into it, the response to some of the early treatments like a fluid challenge, at that time saline or ringers, and very, very often uh, direct interaction with an EMT or helicopter medic that had been at the scene and could verbally describe um, high impact T-bone or lateral compression or a motorcyclist that had obviously gone over the handlebars with some of the AP um, injuries. At the same time, um, we were paying some attention to the early work of uh, Pinnell and Tile, which had classified anterior posterior compression, lateral compression injuries, vertical shear um, injuries at the pelvic ring. Then Jeremy Young, a radiologist who said, hey Burgess, you're calling these films lateral or AP compression because of this guy's Pinnell and Tile. I, I think we ought to classify the films that way. And, and we did that. And then the family started to have an, um, relative versions of this that you could step up in, in what we thought was maybe perhaps the amount of violence. And we had this, we started, so this is a lateral compression that just kind of sacrum crushed in a bit in an anterior transverse pattern. Why don't we call that a lateral compression too? The second type, this patient he seems got a little harder. He cracked the ilium and brought it across a little farther. There's a little more lateral displacement anteriorly, but he's really got an iliac fracture attached to it. Why don't we call that a type two? And we had then this further thing where the patient had obviously, both by the history and by the way, by cl cutting clothes off and seeing tire tread marks and things like that, patient who was entrapped against the, the surface and run over and some extremely high energy T-bone injuries, but both of those gave us what we started to call a lateral compression type three, LC3. The lateral compression injury on one side and an open book injury on the other. And we also knew what that meant to ligamentous tears and stuff like that due to some post-mortem work. And so we knew what ligaments had to be either spared or disrupted based on those films. And we did the same with the AP injuries. There were somewhere we had an opening of the pelvis in front, the symphysial, uh, an opening in, in um, where the two pubic bones met and it opened, but on physical exam, it, it, it didn't go much further. It had a stop point to it. We found that fairly rare, but we called it an AP1. And uh, another AP injury with uh, an SI joint or both open, but obviously on physical exam and even on plane films, the posterior ligaments were intact. So this was like a bind, a book injury to a book, but the posterior elements of the binder stayed intact. We call that an AP2. And then finally, where it was obviously an AP variant, things were swung open, but then complete disruption of the book binder, and we call that an APC3. And that rendered the hemipalpus completely unstable. Vertical shear seemed to be one family. We noticed on following falls from a height, actually only about 50% landed vertically. The other half landed on their side, but of the ones that landed vertically, uh, and with some uh, motorcycle and, uh, and car accidents with an extended limb, you got a vertical shear injury. So that was our family, and we started applying those. And we noticed 
as we went through them in detail, we started looking at the records of some of these in a film uh, paper that preceded this was 373 of these injuries we looked at. And these families had a different set of associated injuries and some common sense would tell you, if you got hit hard from the side and lateral compression family, you often um, uh, manifested that with the solid viscous hits in your abdomen, pulmonary contusion and broken ribs, and occasionally torn aorta. We were torn, told that all aortas were torn an AP injury with the ligamentum taken, but about 17% of aortic injuries in cars are being hit from the side. And also a certain high relevance if you were near side lateral impact with head injury, and usually that was B-pillar contact and, and was severe head injury, and occasionally um, the kind of head injury you get where you get shear at the, at, at the neuron level, although we didn't know that's what was happening to those people. They didn't have a, always a skull fracture, but they had this inertial load that we would figure out later, but head injury was associated with lateral compression. And the same with AP. AP injury is giving you a, a, a bigger pelvic hematoma when, when later on we had the access to, inter, to interventional angio even for studies before we even treating people with clots or, or, or uh, either artificial or not. Uh, but you could see the superior gluteal bleed be pretty much the, the leader in that. And the families became more and more obvious. As you just started to uh, develop these uh, patterns of injuries that you saw from the intake of patients, from the communication with EMS, uh, did that influence um, the treatment of these patients in your close relationship with the general surgeons as you saw these patients getting their uh, exploratory laparotomies, were you then able to maybe direct some of their resuscitation efforts and uh, direct their, um, their care towards specific injuries based upon their, their pelvic uh, ring uh, disruptions? It's multiple uh, fights, literally, to gain some early orthopedic control. The second that you mentioned, and, uh, and I talk about too much, is somebody with an unstable pelvis to inexperienced hands and hemodynamically unstable. And you get the same feel to your physical exam with some lateral compression variants where you're, you're putting your hand on what's normal anatomy and when you feel the medial instability on rotation, you're really recreating the moment of impact. To a young ER doc or a young general surgeon, they'll get the same feel when they're reducing an APC2, let's say. They'll both feel unstable and they'll have a hemodynamic instability. If I'm present or my crew is, we will push to let us, if we realize it's an AP one, let us get some control of the pelvic ring. You, you, you probably have to go in there in the early days with your knife, later on with your angio catheter, but let me control the pelvis first. Whereas you're gonna redirect somebody with a lateral compression injury. No, he's probably not bleeding. He's 22 years old and got a lateral compression hit pretty good. Are you sure he doesn't have a solid viscous or one of his pulmonary contusion broken ribs has got something bleeding in his chest. And so, so very much so, our intervention directed some of the things. This needs a X-fix or binder on the pelvis first before we do much else. This one will go second with a lateral compression stabilization, but you gotta recheck the belly or the chest. That's awesome. So uh, another, another, I think, important thing that came out of your paper was uh, the resuscitation required uh, for certain pelvic ring injuries and in, uh, in terms of the blood units that were required uh, for resuscitation, specifically for the AP type injuries that required significantly more 
blood products. And so once you started to recognize that, how did that play into the resuscitation uh, of these patients? We were getting to 30-something units for an APC3. And one of the reasons the XFIX made its move to the OR or to the ER, or I had instant access to it, it was sterile, it was on the shelf, and we got these, these fixers on quickly. We put on a fixer that would pro, pro, uh, allow a, a follow-up um, exploratory lap. It would allow exploration of a perineum. There were X-fixes that didn't get in the way much, even though they looked bulky. We could get them out of the way of the next step in resuscitation. You, you push a pelvis together and tie it with a sheet, or push a pelvis together and hold it together with an X-fix, or tie femurs together that are unfractured and, and by secondary intent bring the pelvic ring together. And the systolic blood pressure goes up. You could walk into a room, look at a pelvic film on the severe ones that was coming in unstabilized flat on a backboard and, and getting film, sometimes through the backboard, by the way, in our early protocols. We hadn't rolled them off yet because we had these cleared the spine fully. So we were shooting sometimes through wood. But if their pelvis was wide open and with regard to the x-ray, maybe even a closed pelvic APC3, type across them for six, you really knew what your retroperitoneum was going to be like. And also occasionally when you won or lost your battles with the general surgeons and you were those early days when I was trying to say who was right and who was wrong when I knew it was a retroperitoneal bleed and they were arguing, I would scrub in as the first or second assist. And so when I was right and they had pushed me out of the way and didn't let me stabilize the pelvis first, I was calling them while we were in the belly because the blood, yeah, there were some uh, peritoneal bleeders, you know, mesenteric bleeders. But you were looking at a retroperitoneal just bulging out, staring you in the face. And it start, we started to get some orthopedic credibility to put in the protocols you read about in the paper. Dr. Burst, really appreciate your time uh, talking with us about your, your study. And uh, talk any... about the downside of this just before you hang up? Absolutely. No, I, you know I was going to do this. You can edit it out. But basically, <laughs> one of the reasons why I didn't stand in from this is the diagnostics of cat and angio got much better. And this, this is invaluable. But the other thing was probably more important to me, the inner observer reliability of this. We got the whole Shock Trauma Institute interested in the stuff. We all talked this language and everything. But if you put this out and put a lot of pelvic things out and ask people to classify it, the inner observer reliability, I don't think, is something that, that makes this stuff look as usable as I'd hoped. All right. Thank you, Dr. Burgess. If you could unmute yourself and maybe... My even wife has prayed for that. Yeah. yeah, I know. It seems like so long ago, right? <laughs> uh, there are no questions from the uh, peanut gallery, so to speak. I do have one for you. You mentioned there in the end uh, that one of the weaknesses was the reliability amongst providers once this was kind of disseminated to the orthopedic trauma population at large. Do you think the current iteration, which is the AO-OTA classification that puts components of tiopenol in terms of rotational and vertical instability together with the descriptive classification that you developed, do you think that addresses the reliability that you alluded to there in the end of the weaknesses? Yeah, let me give you a self-interested answer though. I think it does that, but I don't think it's as useful. And um, a, a B-type, Ta, Ta got a lot of pressure from Maurice Mueller. It was, you know, it's Pinnell and his, you know, AP lateral compression. It was his, his and George Pennell's um, piece of work that we borrowed from. And um, if you're very interested in the acute treatment, in other words, what, what has taken the pelvis apart and how to assign associated injury, predict bleeding, and the need for aggressive pelvic 
intervention. The, the B type uh, that is rotationally unstable but vertically stable, is that how a B is defined? I think so. Um, Correct, rotationally yeah. unstable, vertically They're stable. They're way different in their hemodynamics and, and what they do. That, that's probably more valuable when you're called a few hours into the case to the ER and you become the, the, the mechanic that has to re, reconform the pelvis and fix it. I think that's helpful and it's good. We were very much in, I think part of what, what I described the scenario of us being very close and being in, involved in the resuscitation. I really wanted to look at a film. I, I sort of was trying to make that dramatic look from our room, walk in the door and say, type and cross them for six. I was the first one to say that because we had so many general surgeons, but the orthopods were only three in number. So we got to see this from a distance and, and interject ourselves in the first 20 minutes. And a, a type B doesn't do squat for me with regard to that, to be brutally frank. So self-interested, but I'm trying to be honest. On the other hand, O'Toole and my own guys that followed me at shock uh, kicked me in the, in the gut, but I think they were right. We, uh, I think everybody was using that classification because uh, they were trying not to embarrass me, maybe at shock, but it did work for us in those days. Thank you. I do have a question from the gallery, but I'm going to hold on that one so my colleagues can address it because it's kind of a little foreshadowing. It's about the amount of rotation that's acceptable for uh, uh, impact on gates, and I think that's going to be yeah, that's a discussion for Dr. Saji and others once we get to that point. Yeah, I, I'm going to add a couple of things. If you got a second, just bleeding yeah, into things. You can see some of the literature that's piled on in years to follow lateral lateral compression. You just don't bleed much unless you're elderly, and all of a sudden you start pulling that group out, and iliolumbar and lateral sacral arteries start to bleed once the watershed of the internal iliac is sort of calcified. You know, I'm saying in my classification that's a fairly forgiving thing because you're pressing it towards the midline. You won't break an artery because it's my, most of my patients were fairly young. As elderly people start driving out into harm's way because their peripheral vision, they get they get near side lateral impact. They're a whole different lead. The the trouble with all of that stuff that's fine tuning, and you have to have, I th I think large numbers before you start to think like that. And that came with us over decades, not not the first few years. I'll, I'll leave it at that. The main main thing is, um, I don't think there's good inter observer reliability on what an AP or lateral compression is at least the way we defined it. And one, one last question. This is prompted from Dr. Saji. Uh, how do you use the classification then now? That is in, in current practice. We, we don't. We, uh, um, I thought this was good for us. Uh, there's no doubt that when CHIP arrived, we went to a different level of, um, of expertise and how to fix and how to deal with the pelvis. And this wasn't uh, the classification preferred at the center I'm at uh, presently. So I'm okay with that. So I don't use it now. Every time I see a pelvic one, I, I uh, put it in my own mind, but I don't think that appears in our charts very often. And we'll, we'll ask Dr. Rout in the next segment as, as an aside, what, what that classification is that he's using. I'll turn it back over to Andrew and Arun to introduce the next segment then. Great, thanks. Um, so I want to thank uh, Dr. David Zolzer uh, for helping out in uh, 
interviewing Dr. Rout on the percutaneous stabilization of U-shaped sacral fractures using ilosacral screws, techniques, and uh, early results. So we will uh, play Dr. Rout's video and then please ask any questions in the Q&A section um, and we'll uh, hear from Dr. Rout with any thoughts and uh, comments he has after the video. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Chip Rout from the University of Texas in Houston uh, to discuss his paper uh, that was published in 2001 entitled Percutaneous Stabilization of U-Shaped Sacral Fractures Using Iliosacral Screws, uh, published on the early techniques and results. Dr. Rout, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, can you tell us about your early experiences and what made you want to do this study? Well, this paper was published in 2001 and actually tracked back before that for a cohort of patients. And I saw my first patient with a displaced, uh, unstable U-shaped sacral fracture that I recognized in 1990. And uh, fortunately, it was a traumatic spondyloptosis so that it was really obvious, but it was in a morbidly obese young guy and he had neurological findings in his feet that really alerted us to the problem. We couldn't see it on his plane films except for a lateral sacral view. And it took three exposures in the, uh, because of his size to identify it. And then of course, we saw it in the CT scan. So he was our first patient to really alert us to that. And then reviewing the literature in the early 90s wasn't quite as simple as it is today. And it became pretty obvious that this diagnosis existed in people, but it just had never really been published except in one textbook I could find an account of bilateral sacral fractures with displacement. It was in John Conley's uh, textbook and it recommended spicocasting treatment for this. Two of our patients early on in the 90s with not so much displacement led to the screw fixation. We had, uh, or I had two patients that I treated with bracing that developed uh, neurological problems. They went from being neurologically normal to having one had uh, really dramatic cardioquina symptoms as a result of the displacement of what was previously a minimally displaced fracture in clinic when he came back at two weeks with neurological findings, he had fairly significant displacement. So that drove us to trying to find a way to do something simple to stabilize. And how has your practice changed since 2001 when this study was published? Well, in 2001, we didn't have long iliosacral screws. So all we had was screws up to 130 millimeters. And we first started using 6.5 fully threaded screws. And then when cannulated screws came about, we started using those, but they, they were limited out at 130. So if you notice in the paper, the, the screws go from left to right and right to left to in an attempt to lock threads. So we were doing the best we could to use iliosacral screws to hold it. But you can imagine we didn't have uh, screws beyond 130 millimeters until 2006. So that was even five years after this uh, study was published. And this cohort of patients came from even before then. So Any limitations of the technique that you found uh, in your years of doing it? Well, the limitations would be if there's not a safe pathway for the screws to be inserted. And um, fortunately, for most patients, there are almost always safe pathways. We rarely find a patient with uh, osteology and injury deformity that obviates the ability to put in uh, safe iliosacral screws. The technique has evolved into um, long transsacral screws 
as many as you can put safely into the conduit bone, uh, uh, area of opportunity. And then depending on where the transverse limb is, if the transverse limb is at the S1, S2 area, then we tend to just use the fixation in the upper sacral segment. If the transverse limb is at S2, uh, then we can use screws at S1 and S2 in those pathways. And then it, if it's a U, a pure U, then we just use iliosacral screws. If it's a Y or a backwards Y or an H, then that gets into fixing the anterior ring as well. And then um, maybe adding on level pelvic. And which, for which patients are you consulting with your spine colleagues? Well, we, we have a good symbiotic relationship. Uh, and so we'll, I'll discuss almost everyone with them just to make sure that it's not something that they think needs to have additional lumbopelvic fixation. But typically, it's the uh, really severe H's and Y's and backwards Y's. For almost all the U sacral fractures, the spine surgeons don't uh, get involved unless there's some need to do acute decompressions uh, as a result of the, the neurological findings. If a patient has a neurologic uh, lesion, uh, have you found it to have any effect on that? I'm sure. Your experience. Yeah, so if, if you find, if a patient presents and the diagnosis is made in, in a temporally reasonable manner, like acutely, and they have some type of positional neurology, for example, we had a lady that came into the clinic not too long ago and she was sent from our spine uh, colleague. And when she would stand up and walk around, she had fallen several weeks earlier, three or four weeks earlier, and she was okay for a week or so, but then for the last week or so, she wasn't okay. And when she would walk, she would lose a sensation in her feet and her feet would, she would get like foot drops on both sides and her instability was very, or her neurology was positional. And you can treat those patients early, help them with the reduction by just putting them uh, in a good position in the operating room and then stabilize them. And then that way they don't have this instability that's related to the neurological finding. And how successful do you think we are now at identifying these patients in an appropriate time point and treating them? Hey, do you still see deficiencies in your practice where patients are referred to you late with unrecognized injuries? Yeah, so the, the acute ones from high energy trauma are, are caught. I think everyone's pretty alert to the paradoxical inlet now in the emergency centers across the globe. I think the paradoxical inlet is a real thing for the displaced ones. I think this, uh, the advent of CT scans in the trauma patient picks up, I would say, almost 100% of these. Uh, the, the patient population is still having a lot of delayed or misdiagnoses is the elders who fall, and they get uh, pretty much pushed away. And so we still see, you know, sometimes I just had a lady who had fallen two months earlier and had neurological changes, and the diagnosis was still missed um, until she finally found our, our way to someone who can see the diagnosis. I've also had patients who've been to four different emergency rooms, you know, over a two week period uh, recently trying to just get care uh, where the diagnosis was not identified. Either in certain situations they weren't imaged uh, or they were not identified on the images or they just finally uh, got a CT scan and, and, ident and identified. So, but not, not so much in the young trauma patients that I think, I think most of those get found. You're still bracing your patients postoperatively after fixation, and when are you uh, usually letting them weed bear? So we used HTLSOs because we had to go down to the hip, and those were pretty cumbersome. We used hinged hip 
thoracic lumbar sacral orthoses, and those were custom made for the patients. And uh, some of them were compliant and some of them weren't, and it was a mess. Uh, I think with the advent of improved technique and also implants, once we got screws that were long enough to give us transsacral fixation, and we started learning more and more about filling up the pathways with multiple screws at multiple levels when possible, then we had improved stability. And then we also added lumbopelvic stabilization when that's necessary. So we don't use braces anymore. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Dr. Ralph, for being here. Um, it doesn't look like any questions have popped up through the Q&A box. Um, I do have um, a couple questions for you and then uh, maybe any comments you have. Um, one is, um, what are your thoughts on non-displaced U-type uh, sacral fractures? Um, and if you attempt any kind of mobilization and see if there's any displacement or if you think those are indicated for operative fixation. And then the second part of the question is um, really in the, in the elderly population, what your thoughts are uh, regarding this injury. I think most of the patients in your, um, in your article here were young, um, higher energy uh, patients. And I, I think we're starting to see a little bit more of a trend of the geriatric uh, fractures and catching these um, U-type sacral fractures as well in that population. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me. And I'm uh, glad to be here. I, I want to just say that so many things have changed since 2001 when the manuscript was uh, published. And uh, to answer your question, uh, elders have been having these fractures for as long as we've had elders. There's no new phenomenon to elders now getting fractures. People have been having these fractures since the beginning of time. We're just a little keener to them now, and I think we have to listen to the patients. We, uh, we have a patient right now pending a surgery who uh, likely was not going to have a surgery if you just can't recognize the injury. So I, I would just say that it's not a new phenomenon. It's just that people are more aware of it, at sure. least from an orthopedic trauma standpoint. We have flooded the market with orthopedic trauma surgeons. So of course, people are looking for things to do and these they get identified. So, um, and as far as non-displaced closed management, you can certainly try non-displaced non or minimally displaced uh, fractures with no, with no treatment at all. And as long as they're stable, uh, they'll stay right there. But you don't really have a crystal ball and I sure don't. And I don't know which ones are going to change and which aren't. And I don't have a way to clinically correlate the ones that hurt worse are going to displace and the ones that don't hurt so bad won't. I, I don't have a clinical or a radiographic or a, any type of way to predict the future on a, essentially non-displaced you that has come to the ER for help because they're hurting really badly. So usually that's what brings them to the hospital is they're hurting really badly. So uh, I would just say it's been my practice uh, since we got safe with iliosacral screws in the early 90s, and then especially since we got longer screws to treat all of those patients that I identify if they are safe for anesthesia because stabilization almost always prevents later displacement. It gives them essentially immediate comfort. The patients will go from an 8 to 9 out of 10 to a 3 uh, pretty much immediately. So I think the, the comfort... Uh, that helps them get off analgesia and allows them to be mobilized straight away is a really good benefit. So uh, I, I wouldn't say all, but I would say almost all. And I think one of the questions that was added, uh, asked right at the end of the, the talk, I don't think we got to it, is about the weight-bearing status. So what is your typical protocol uh, for, um, for these patients from weight-bearing standpoint? 
So my wants and what I get are two different things. It's a whole lot like life. What I wish for <laughs> sure. and what I ask for, it's like raising children. You can tell them what to do and then they'll do what they damn well please, especially in the state, great state of Texas. So <laughs> in, uh, I will tell you in Seattle, people are pretty compliant, but in uh, Texas, people are not. And so our patients essentially do whatever they feel like doing. And I, I think if I was an elder with this injury, I would do whatever my comfort allowed. Uh, and usually that's uh, some type of protected weight bearing. It's a tandem protected weight bearing that use a walker, but as soon as their comfort allows, they're usually on a cane or something like that. So we don't, we don't usually restrict their activities. We encourage them to use a walker and do a tandem weight bear, but uh, usually they're pretty much doing whatever they feel comfortable doing. And usually the stability extrapolates to the comfort. Last question is about um, dysmorphic, if you have a dysmorphic sacrum. Um, are those kind of in the situations where you have to start thinking about more about lumbopelvic fixation if the U is going between S1 and S2 or? So not necessarily. We were just reviewing a case earlier today, uh, uh, me and Dr. Garlic, and we uh, showed it was a patient who in uh, August of uh, 2018 had had a, a lot about with abdominal pain and she had had um, a CT scan as a part of her abdominal evaluation and she was an absolute dysmorph. And then about two months later, she fell and she got a displaced U and she was no longer a dysmorph. And so what happens with the dysmorphs when they break and they collapse and they displace and they intrude, then usually what used to be a dysmorph is not so much of a dysmorph. So for the younger people, maybe a little different, but for the older, a lot of times who is a dysmorph becomes uh, optimal for transsacral. But if they, again, just like we said in the video, if they don't have a conduit of safety for a transsacral screw and you totally understand the radiographic imaging and the conduits and where the screws need to go and you see that, then that's not a good candidate, whether they're young or old or whatever they are. If there's no conduit for the screw, then there's no screw and we have lumbopelvic available. So then those patients do get lumbopelvic. It's just a more extensive surgery, but if that's what they need, that's what they get. Sure. Um, any other further comments you wanted to provide Dr. Rout before we move on? No, I think Dr. Burgess just sort of left uh, a question hanging about uh, what was what type of classification scheme do we oh, yeah. do yeah. Now, nowadays? And I would just say we do a hybrid of his and Dr. Pinal's and then just Letourneau's anatomical classification. So I, I really like to know the details of the anatomy of what areas of the bone are injured and what their deformity and displacements are. So that usually takes us uh, to where we are. So the APC2 or whatever can give us that, but then I want to know specifically what areas of the anatomy. Is the symphysis pure or is it parasymphyseal? Is it a combination of fracture dislocation? Things like that. So we, we blend in uh, anatomy so that we have really good communication uh, with the classification scheme that Dr. Burgess described. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, so I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Anasia to go with our uh, third and final article for tonight. All right, uh, for our final article, landmark article on pelvis, we've got Dr. Claude Saji, who's going to be talking to us about examination under anesthesia for pelvic ring injuries. Um, Dr. Saji is at University of Cincinnati, and Adam was kind enough to do the interview. We'd like to welcome everybody to the AO Journal Club, Dr. Saji is gonna to talk to us about the examination under anesthetic for occult pelvic ring instability. Dr. Saji, could you give us a brief overview of the design? Well, the impetus for the study was born out of another paper that we wrote and 
something that we noticed in there was that there was in fact a higher rate of symphysial plating failure and loss of reduction if people presented with certain radiographic features and, and felt that if that that might in fact be a, a marker for more instability than we we theoretically or historically have attributed to the young Burgess classification scheme. Sometimes when you clamp the synthesis, it comes together perfectly. And sometimes when you clamp the synthesis, it comes together and you can't internally rotate it anymore, but one pubic body is a little higher than the other, one is a little more posterior than the other maybe, or both. And and you know this is kind of one of these peculiar findings. It's like, well, what the heck, what's going on here? So there's there's multiplanar instability involved in that. And so the the study was designed to try to take a look at all these these fractures and the injuries. Primarily, are the B type is this huge gray zone where I think that there's such a a, a wide spectrum that we sought to investigate a little bit more with the whole concept of this examination under anesthetic. The series of, of views and, and maneuvers that we described and performed was basically based off of how we conceptualized uh, our injury based on the young Burgess classification, which is a mechanistic type classification, you know, to somehow try to elucidate all of that together at the same time trying to compress on the trochanters internally rotate the legs or the next one where you know where we have the patient frog leg the figure where we are shown doing the push and the pull the whole reason we added this to it was because of what i referenced earlier on that symphysial plate study that's what i think we're trying to figure out here is this asymmetry with one pubic body relative to the other and you do a push pull which in theory is simulating weight bearing so the 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 point was to take a bunch of b-type fractures that we're going to fix and see if in fact they move the one caveat to that is the apc1 which isn't really technically a b-type fracture i guess the reason we included apc1s was because we felt that well, I bet you there's a bunch of APC1s that are actually truly APC2s if we want to think and box things that way. What were the main results? Uh, were you surprised in any way about what you found? One is that, in fact, there are APC1s that are really APC2s. There are fractures that come in that look really stable, but in fact are much more unstable than, than they appear. You know, we talked about in this paper about this APC. 2A and 2B. One of, the, one of the things we found is that there are some that externally rotate and there's no flexion and extension, but there are some that externally rotate and there is flexion and extension instability. And I, and I think that those two are very different. They're very different animals. So the question is, well, do you have to treat those differently than the ones that do have flexion, extension, instability? And I, and I think the other thing that that was interesting that kind of came out of the EUAs was this whole concept of the occult LC3 that we're all um, you know, familiar with. You know, you start to examine some of these and you've got a lateral compression, but lo and behold, actually the contralateral SI joint 
is it actually unstable a little bit? The EUA can help elucidate some of these occult LC3 fractures in addition, in addition to the, the, uh, just the plain lateral compression. And I, I left the lateral compression, which is where you, it just came to with this, the pictures here. I left that for last to discuss, I think, because you've got, I think, the greatest <laughs> gray zone and controversy associated with these ones. And I still have people, you know, complaining about this and criticizing it. Everything that we did, especially for this, was completely arbitrary. We had to define something. We had to have some sort, something to kind of move off of, you know. And, you know, the, the paper that Bruce, Sims, and Riley put out with regards to complete or incomplete, that really kind of opened up a whole new area, too, of thinking, you know. what? So we kind of took that concept and applied it to the LC1s and say, okay, here's a batch that now we're going to EUA because there are some that look exactly the same. They have minimal displacement. Maybe it's a complete sacral fracture, but there's really no displacement and there's not a lot of residual deformity. And you can have two different clinical presentations. You can have a patient sitting on the end of the bed with this exact film here eating breakfast saying, doc, when the hell can I go home? And you can have the same set of films in another patient where they're laying in bed and they're saying, don't touch me, I hurt too much, don't even roll me to clean me. These things can present clinically in different ways and I think that's is where it helps us to say, okay, maybe this person is having more pain than we really think they should have, maybe they benefit from something like an EUA or a variation on that theme. In terms of trying to decide a threshold for saying, yes, this is unstable or this is stable. How much rotation is too much rotation? How much overlap or displacement? How do you quantify it? And does that actually correlate with anything that we know functionally and clinically? No, the answer to that is no, obviously. This is just a starting point to try to really bring out the fact that, that okay, you have someone who has a pelvic fracture that looks fairly innocuous that the vast majority of the time will be able to be treated successfully in a non-operative fashion without displacing. But it's not binary. It's not zero and 100%. There are some that look innocuous that are going to move. And maybe it's those ones that are painful and can't mobilize. Maybe it's something different. The EUA helps to, I think, to treat those people to say, well, oh, we got hardly any deformity but boy they've got a lot of pain and they can't mobilize maybe they're more unstable than we think and sure enough some of them are that's a completely arbitrary uh, distinction and and even judgment call at the time isn't it right and i think that's why this one continues to be so controversial that is an excellent summary i think we're going to move on if you were to design this today would you have done anything differently? What would be really nice to know is that if you could take all of these same injuries, you give everybody an EUA, and then you treat some operatively and some non-operatively, and then you see where they heal, and then you figure out what their functional limitations, problems, what are complications, malunion, non-union rate is, and see if there's any correlation to that with the EUA. 
the, you know, the big criticisms that I've heard about this as well, Saji can't take everybody to the OR. Well, what about you can't give everybody an anesthetic, you know, you don't have to give people an anesthetic for this. You can just sedate them while you do the EUA and wake them up from that if you decide not to operate and give them a full anesthetic if you decide to operate. But it's a real thing trying to find OR time and put this into an OR schedule. And you don't want to unnecessarily EUA and sedate and anesthetize people that don't need to, to do it. And so I, I think that to, to design a study now on this really would be nice to figure out who really needs the EUA. And the hardest thing in redesigning this study is going to be to define what is your threshold for too much movement, too much motion. If you could give a one-minute synopsis on the take-home points and how this affects your practice and how you use this in current times. A, things can be more unstable than they appear, and B, that there are, in fact, other planes of instability that we may not be recognizing, and that some of the poor results we see in pelvic fractures may, in fact, be due to unrecognized instability that's going undertreated. It's interesting how EUA has affected my practice because I got on the bandwagon, so I was doing a lot. And, you know, now for me, I use EUA pretty specifically for in two scenarios now. One is when people have fairly innocuous looking static imaging, but are complaining of more pain and are having difficulty mobilizing. So I think maybe this is more unstable than it's letting on. But I really try to mobilize people more than I did even five or five years ago. I really kind of swung more back to just let them mobilize, just see how they do. The other for me is where, where I still really haven't changed at all is this APC2A to APC2B. If they flex and extend as well as externally rotate, those are the people that I will add supplemental fixation into because to, to protect the anterior fixation. And that's, that's where I am now. Ask me tomorrow, it'll be a different answer. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Saji. This is a great uh, article. Every time I read it, I get so much out of it. So I'm going to ask you several questions. Uh, the first one was uh, one that was actually asked by one of the participants uh, under Anonymous. And I think you kind of addressed this in your video, but um, they were asking how much internal rotation the hemi pelvis is acceptable before you see any sort of impact on gait? And has there been any studies done on that that you know of? I'm not aware of anything that, that, uh, that will give you that answer. And, and I think part of the reason too, it's gonna to be difficult to come up with a number is that, you know, the diameter of the pelvis of a 115 pound, five foot two, uh, lady is going to be very different than the diameter necessarily of a pelvis of a six foot eight, 330 pound man. And you can't, you know, if you want to go for a, a specific number that it, it, you know, for instance, I'll like just to, as an analogy to that, it's the, you know, the two, 2.5 centimeters that we historically use for moving from an APC one to an APC two, you know, that, that number was just a mean. And, and that mean, when it's a mean, that means that there are numbers for unstable pelvis that are less than that. And there are numbers for 
a stable pelvis that are greater than that in some cases. And so I don't think you can apply a number. I'm not exactly even sure that we're going to come up with a number, <laughs> honestly. Like, I don't know how you would come up with it and figure that out. And and the number that you can apply reliably to everybody. I don't think we're, I don't think we're ever going to get there. And in terms of how that affects function, um, there's got to be some ratio, I suspect, of, of original pelvic diameter to residual pelvic diameter and the position of your ischial tuberosities uh, that would somehow adversely affect your gait and function. Uh, but man, I tell you, we've all seen it. People with, you know, pelvic malunions that are doing just fine. And uh, I know I've got them and I know everybody else has got them. And so I think these are they're great questions. Everybody's asking that question. That, but when we get to the answer to that, and it's going to be a while, I think, unfortunately. Great. Uh, another question kind of came up from the audience, and this is uh, similar to a question we drew up as well. You kind of described this in your paper, but uh, can you kind of walk us through your protocol for addressing APC2 injuries? You know, how you distinguish the APC2A versus the B in your uh, treatment modality for these? Right. Well, you know, I, uh, I remember very distinctly a video that Andrew Burgess showed when I was a young disciple of all this, you know, and, and I was just in my, I was just about to start my fellowship and, and he, he had this cine fluoro of a pelvis that they, you know, that they examine and, and it wasn't, it was doing just to demonstrate how you can hide injuries and you know, how some of these are really unstable in the OR. And it was remarkable, right? you know, and, and that stuck with me. And then we moved through to this paper that I referenced about symphysial plating. And there are, you know, it, it's, it's hard to believe this. I know for a lot of people that are out there now, but even I'm old enough now to remember the days when APC2 injuries were almost routinely treated with anterior fixation alone. Now this business about putting posterior fixation to so many of these injuries is part of the evolution of practice. But when I was a resident, when I was a fellow, the majority of APC injuries, just these B-type open book fractures, were treated with anterior fixation alone. And you would even let a lot of them weight bear because the, the rule was that in that injury, the posterior ligaments are intact and it shouldn't fail with vertical or cranial translation. But in this symphysial, when, when we looked at the, this paper and all the different types of symphysial plating, some symphysial plating for these open book injuries, they did fine and some of them failed. And the ones that seemed to fail were the ones that presented on their injury films with not just external rotation, and these are all B-type injuries, not just external rotation, but external rotation and one pubic body higher than the other. So either one is extended or one is flexed relative to the other, right? What does that mean? Well, we don't really know exactly what it means, but I think anatomically, you have to remember that the posterior sacroiliac joint ligament is an intraarticular ligament. It is not a band, it's not a tension band like the anterior SI ligament. So you can tear the anterior SI ligament, sacrospinous, sacrotuberous, and I think we always assume that the posterior SI ligament is intact when we have that injury pattern. But in fact, maybe you tear it enough, it's still intact, you're not gonna get cranial translation, but 
it allows now multiplanar instability. So now it allows it to flex and extend. So there's some attenuation of that ligament. In addition to that, maybe you have more injury to the pelvic floor, which also gives some stability. So you start to get into this spectrum, right? And so to answer your question, how do, how do I use it in the APC2? For me personally, and this is just, you know, this is how I use it now, is if I can disclose flexion and extension in addition to external rotation, for me, that is the indication to put posterior fixation into augment anterior. The, you know, we could get into the discussion of going posterior only for these, you know, these B-type rotational injuries, which I think is, is craziness. But if you, if you think about you know, fixing it and then you now disclose multi-axial, multi-planar instability, then supplementing that anterior fixation makes sense to me. And I use the EUA to disclose that if it's not readily apparent on the injury films. And, and, and I think for me, that's, that's the important part. One of the important parts about it now is how it's evolved for me anyways. Uh, it seems like the audience is uh, coming alive. We've got more questions for you. Um, this, uh, you know, this pertains to more so the LC uh, mechanism injuries. Um, so you mentioned, you know, patients who have excessive amount of pain. That's one of your indications for EUA where, you know, the, the static image really doesn't kind of justify it. But for which sort of LC injuries are you taking for EUA besides inability to weight bear? And then after you addressed for some of the severe LC injuries, do you restress after each area of fixation? All right, so the first question is, which LC injuries do I utilize in EUA apart from the ones that are difficult to mobilize, pain? Well, the only one that I would really do it on is if I have a lateral compression and I'm looking for an occult LC3, so there's an injury to the contralateral sacroiliac joint that's unrecognized. People are in a binder or people are sitting in the concavity of the of the gantry or whatever that goes into the CT scan. And we all know that these things can potentially hide subtle opening of the sacroiliac joint. So there are some, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, we, we just wrote a paper on this. It's about eight to 10% of them that we found had this occult injury to the contralateral side joint. And the thing that's yeah, probably everyone here has noticed when you put a trans, now that we put transsacral screws in so much because, you know, Chip Route has, you know, taught us and really, you know, expanded the, the transsacral screw usage, which has really helped us a lot for sacral fractures in particular. You know, you got, I don't know how many times, and, and you know, you've done it where you're putting a transsacral screw across for a sacral fracture, and as the threads cross the contralateral SI joint, now suddenly the, that joint opens up. Oh, well, you know, you've got maybe an occult LC3. But you can recognize that, I think, with an EUA beforehand. So I, I like it for the uh, disclosing the occult LC3 in an LC1 or an LC2 uh, presumed injury. I think for me, that's where I would use it primarily now in the LC, in the LC category. Yeah. Um, for an LC2 injury, uh, if you've stabilized the crescent component, the sacral fracture, do you restress the anterior component before you try and address it, or do you just go ahead and 
address the answer component? I, I, I am not a uh, I am not a believer that there's value in restressing the pelvis after I've fixed it. I you know, I think I don't know how you are going to disclose. I can't. I think it was Pfeiffer that wrote a paper on. Pfeiffer or Lefebvre wrote a paper on stressing after fixation and none of them moved, you know, and I haven't been able to disclose any residual motion after fixing it, but I'm a little bit older school, I think, in that I, for these B-type injuries, I think if you're going to fix them, they all need some form of anterior stabilization, plus or minus posterior. But now there's this whole movement out there for posterior only fixation for B-type fractures, which to me just flat out doesn't make sense. But if you're gonna do that, I guess that's the, where the value of doing EUA after fixation may lay is if you're one of these posterior only fixations for B-type fractures, well, maybe you better stress it uh, after you do that because you're gonna probably have to add some anterior fixation. Um, but I don't, I don't stress after fixation. I disclose all the injury with the EUA first and then make my fixation plan based on the results of that. Great. Thank you, Dr. Saji. All right, great. Um, thank you all. So uh, quick take-home messages. Um, the Young and Burgess classification system allows for grouping of pelvic ring injuries based on mechanism of injury. Early percutaneous fixation of U-shaped sacral fractures is effective in preventing progressive deformity while assisting with early mobilization. And the examine under anesthesia uh, is a useful tool to assess the dynamic component of pelvic ring injuries. So uh, I want to thank uh, our authors today for spending the time um, and also my co-moderators. And uh, thank you all for participating and, and the audience for asking questions as well. Uh, we are um, having um, upcoming orthopedic journal clubs. Uh, next month is the OTA, so we'll, we'll take a break from next month, but um, we will send out reminders. Uh, we'll plan on November uh, to discuss tibial plateau fractures, and in December, we'll uh, tackle pilon fractures. And then I uh, just want to remind everybody that the recording will be available through, um, through YouTube, um, and a recording will be, um, the link will be sent out to you all um, as well. And I think that is it. Thank you, everybody.